worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also so excited to be growing the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardionerds. We are establishing the Cardionerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardionerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. We are so excited to be joined by colleagues from Northwestern University Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. We have with us Drs. Sarah Hale, Graham Lorman, and Sarah Chusey. Guys, welcome to the show. We're so excited for this. Why don't you introduce yourselves? Hi, thank you for having us. I'm Sarah Hale. I'm a first-year cardiology fellow. I'm originally from the Chicago suburbs and I've been in the area most of my life. I did residency at Northwestern and loved it, so I was very happy to stay on for fellowship. Some of my hobbies include trying out the many amazing restaurants in Chicago and running along the lakefront. Hi, everyone. I'm Graham. I'm one of the second-year cardiology fellows. Originally from South Africa, I did residency in Boston and then moved with my wife to my favorite city, Chicago. Hobbies include grilling on my back deck and biking on the lakefront. Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Chusey. I am a third-year cardiology fellow. I'm originally from Washington, D.C., and I actually bleed purple, as they say, meaning I've been at Northwestern since medical school. So I did residency and fellowship at Northwestern as well. So I clearly love it. Uh, I love to travel and also bike around Chicago. As of December, I have a new hobby, which is my son, Max, who is eight months old. So that's been keeping me busy lately. Oh, congratulations. Woo! Amazing. Amazing. Sarah Graham, thank you for joining us today. This is super cool. For the listeners, I know I say every city is my favorite city if I've been there, but Chicago, it has a special place in my heart. I've been there several times. I have a lot of family and friends there. I love the lakefront. I one time was there, had a day to, to kill and just like really just walked up and down, really feeling A, that I need to exercise because basically everybody's exercising there and B, like, wow, what a place. What a community. And then you see the Chicago skyline as you're walking. It's just a, such an incredible city. Been there really uh, several times. Love the historical tour on the boat. It's just been absolutely fantastic. And I also have to say, I, I cheated on my diet on Friday, hardcore, because my wife bought me Chicago stuffed crust pizza, which I know is not authentic because it's from Baltimore, but it was still good. Take Amit and myself to your favorite spot 
in Chicago. And that's what we'll have our case discussion today. We really want to see what you value and paint a picture. Yeah. So we thought we'd have you guys try one of the most famous burgers in Chicago from Oshaval. And we thought we'd take our burgers and fries and head to the lakefront for a picnic. That sounds like a wonderful way of spending our Sunday afternoons, guys. I've got my Impossible Burger. We're on the lakefront. Hit us. What do we have today? All right. So this is a case of a 41-year-old male who presents for a second opinion regarding ICD shocks. He says his cardiac history dates back to 10 years ago when he was diagnosed with a weak heart. He was told it was likely due to a viral infection. He received a dual-chamber ICD at that time. Five years ago, he experienced his first set of ICD shocks. They were of unclear ideology, but he reports that his settings were adjusted at that time, and he was started on amiodarone. Two years ago, he had some more shocks. They were also of unclear ideology. He was also noted at that time to have rare paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, which was detected on his device. One month ago, he was hospitalized at an outside hospital for six shocks. He brings a note in from his EP doctor documenting VT and VF. He was also found to have high defibrillation thresholds, or DFTs, and amiodarone was stopped. He now presents to Northwestern for a second opinion. Otherwise, he's feeling pretty well and really has no acute complaints. His symptoms would be classified as NYHA class 1. Sarah, maybe I can ask a quick question, and, and we may not know the answer to this because this mm -hmm. is all elsewhere, but do you know what the thought process was behind a patient presenting with multiple shocks, with high DFTs, and stopping an antiarrhythmic? Was there an alternative choice or a different plan that was enacted at the time? Yeah, so I think some of the records that we have are blurry, but we are actually going to get into the thought process of why the amiodarone was stopped a little bit later on in the case. But you're right, yeah. that the amio was stopped and then we don't, there wasn't quite another plan. We yeah. think that maybe the plan was to start him on another antiarrhythmic as soon as the amio washed out, but sort of unclear. Hearing about all these shots and ICD firings, just something that I learned pretty early on as a cardiology fellow. I may have even been a resident, but I just remember having a patient who witnessed his first ICD shock. So he had gotten an ICD based on the current guidelines, received his ICD, like everything was supposed to happen. And then sure enough, a couple of years later, he happened to be in the hospital for this particular event and it fired. And obviously code blue was called because it wasn't clear. We, no one had, we just saw it go off on telly and ran into the room and saw the patient all in a daze. And just my initial reaction was like, wow, life saved. ICDs are amazing. This is this is why you got it. And I went in there with a mindset to educate him about what happened and show him how valuable the device was and that the reason why he got it all along was very helpful. But in his eyes was like a totally different picture. He was legitimately freaked out. And I just immediately reset myself. But I also was like, wow, I really came at this from a clinician side and somebody just very excited about cardiology. And I didn't think about his perspective. And it was just very telling to me. And so to see somebody having so many ICD shocks, it definitely could take a real psychological toll on people. So just reflecting on that idea. Yeah, Dan, that's such a great point. I've definitely taken care of patients who've almost had PTSD from ICD shocks. And while the appropriate ICD shock certainly may be a life saved, it really begs a question of what the underlying cause is and why the patient is having so many shocks. So it'll be interesting to navigate through the rest of the workup. Um, so Sarah, what, what do we know about this patient? Yeah. In terms of the rest of his history, his past medical history is really only notable for this cardiomyopathy, kind of, of unclear ideology, paroxysmal AFib, and then the documented VF and VT. His only surgical history is the implantation of the DCICD. For medications, he takes Losartan, Aplerinone, Xarelto, and then he did not tolerate a beta blocker due to lightheadedness. In terms of his family history, he had a 10-year-old second cousin with heart issues. 
we couldn't really expand further on that, but there's no family history of sudden cardiac death or heart failure. And then in terms of his social history, he doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, doesn't use any illicit drugs. He's a banker. He travels between Germany and the U.S., and he's married with four children. I'd like to jump in here if that's okay. Just wanted to highlight a few very interesting points about this case. So I'm glad that Dan and Amit highlighted really how patients can be traumatized by frequent shocks. And it's pretty frequent that these patients actually do get some degree of PTSD. In this case, when you're getting a second opinion um, patient coming in, it highlights the challenges where care is often fragmented. They're seen at multiple hospitals. Often your electronic medical record doesn't communicate with theirs and you're kind of getting piecemeal information a lot of which is from the patient. And it makes it a little bit more challenging to piece together a story of how it all began. But overall, it sounds like the etiology of his cardiomyopathy is not actually known. Many years back, often patients would just be labeled as having a viral-related cardiomyopathy, whereas a lot of these may have actually had other etiologies. So it'd be really nice to know whether he had a viral prodrome that preceded this presentation, or if he had a presentation consistent with acute fulminant myocarditis or anything like that. Just important to keep an open mind about this and avoid anchoring bias based on a prior chart diagnosis, especially given his frequent shocks. The burden of arrhythmia that he has is potentially a lot more than what you'd expect from a viral myocarditis. So we definitely need to dig a little deeper. And I just wanted to backpedal a little bit and talk about DFTs or defibrillation thresholds. So just for early trainees, what this really means is what is the minimal amount of energy that is required to cardiovert a patient out of a cardiac arrhythmia? And when we say that's elevated, uh, for example, most defibrillators eventually will shock VF or VT at about 41 joules. So once it requires more than that, it's really an elevated defibrillation threshold. And we can think about this in three broad causes, the first of which is myocardial factors, such as factors that affect the success, which is related to current density traveling through the myocardium. And these include things such as conditions that give you increased myocardial mass, such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or electrical disorganization, such as an inflammatory cardiomyopathy, or a dilated LV, which shifts the LV apex leftward away from the optimal defibrillation vector. And that can also result in increased DFTs. The second potential cause is really extra myocardial factors, such as increased impedance or resistance from canticoil. And these are things such as a high BMI or lung processes such as COPD, as well as electrical imbalances and medications. The most common medication implicated on high DFTs is amiodarone, which we know was stopped in this patient after the DFTs were noted to be elevated. And device factors are the last potential cause to consider. And this is always important to exclude. And the biggest feared factor is a lead fracture, which you have to look for, which often can present with high impedances, but not necessarily. And also technical factors at time of implantation, such as an RV lead that's not apical enough, which results in an inadequate vector and goes back to the current density problem. So in this case, given his history of being on amiodarone, it seems like that's probably the most likely cause, and this was stopped, but if he continues to have high DFTs, other factors would need to be considered. So Sarah, would you like to share the physical exam findings with us? Graham, thanks so much for going over the differential diagnosis and definition of high defibrillation thresholds or DFTs, because I definitely didn't have a way of approaching that before five minutes ago. So that's awesome. And then I also like that at this point, you're not only thinking, okay, if he's having ICD shocks, we have to treat that and we have to figure out how to prevent them in the future. But you're also already thinking, okay, what is the underlying predisposition? What is the underlying cardiomyopathy? And what jumps out right away is that this is a 41-year-old man who was told that he's had a weak heart 10 years ago. So at that time, he was just beyond the age of 30. And he's got a vague family history, but a family history nonetheless of a young cousin who's, what, 10 years old, 
who's had some sort of heart failure or heart issue as well. And so it certainly, I think, will help direct what the evaluation may be. But I also, at the same time, love that you brought up not having an anchoring bias. And we see that all the time when we get a transfer from somewhere else and a patient comes with an assessment from someone else, the trust but verify. But then also at this point, I don't want to anchor on the age and family history because there's so many things that could be going on at this early stage. So let's get some objective data. Yeah. So I'll start with the physical exam and vitals. For his vitals, he's bradycardic, heart rate is 52. His blood pressure is 98 over 60, and he's satting 98% on room air. His BMI is 20. In general, he's a comfortable, well-appearing male. His lungs sound clear to auscultation bilaterally, and his JVD is measured at 5 centimeters of water with a negative hepatojugular reflux. His PMI is mildly displaced. There's no RV lift. He's bradycardic but regular rate and no murmurs, rubs, or gallops, and his ICD site looks well-healed. His abdomen's soft, and he has no edema in his lower extremities. We then were able to view some blood work from the outside records from his most recent hospitalization a month ago, and everything looked pretty normal. He had a CBC and chem panel that were normal. LFTs were normal. A thyroid panel was checked, and it showed an elevated TSH, but a normal free T4, and he's had no recent cardiac biomarkers checked. The team then gets a chest x-ray, which overall looks unremarkable. The DCICD is visualized with leads that are appropriately positioned. The lung fields are clear. There's no hyalur fullness. No significant cardiomegaly visualized either, but there may be some RV enlargement because there's no space seen between the sternum and the RV on the lateral film. All right. So yeah, I just wanted to reflect on, because we're getting a lot of objective data, just appreciate how much this data is really passing the quote-unquote eyeball test. We have a physical exam that is really remarkably unremarkable for somebody who's had this history of cardiomyopathy. And we have labs that really aren't giving us evidence that somebody is acutely ill. And I know he's here for a second opinion. It really fits that. But just reflecting, he's got a cardiomyopathy going back a couple of years. He's got multiple ICD shocks. But modern therapy is really helping him. He's on pretty reasonable meds. He's on, I see he's on Lasartan, Plarinone, and I guess that's what he's on. But he's fully functional as a banker. He's got a family. It's, it seems like his condition is really uh, governed by his electrical issues. and He's not coming in a low perfused state. Yeah, exactly. So some of the next data that we got was an EKG, which is A-paced, V-sensed at 50 beats per minute. There was a normal access, no chamber enlargement, some borderline low voltage, and nonspecific T-wave abnormalities. The team then got an echo. The LV looked moderately dilated without LVH. The EF was 30%. There were prominent trabeculations in the LV, but no LV thrombus. His EF looked globally reduced with regional variation. There were multiple wall motion abnormalities, which were not confined to a particular vascular territory. And then his RV was moderately dilated with normal function, normal RVSP, and a right atrial pressure of three. His LA was normal in size, and his RA was moderately dilated, and there was no significant valvular abnormalities. The team was able to obtain records of an angiogram from 10 years ago, which showed no coronary artery disease. So Sarah has done a great job presenting this case so far. And we're going to take a pause here just to talk about the differential diagnosis for this interesting patient. So before I come up with my differential, I always like to make a problem list. And this really helps me highlight the different aspects of the case that I want to tie together when I explore potential unifying etiologies. So our problem list includes the following. We first have a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. 
And even though this patient was told that he likely had viral myocarditis, as Graham said, the etiology of his cardiomyopathy is still really unclear and we need to keep an open mind. And actually, in preparing for this case, I read an article that was published in the New England Journal in 2000, in which the authors evaluated the outcomes of a cohort of 1,200 patients who were referred and underwent extensive testing for what was initially deemed unexplained cardiomyopathy. And they did right heart cath with biopsy in all patients and took a detailed history and exam and performed selected laboratory studies such as HIV, ANA, and thyroid studies. And in this study, which was published in 2000, meaning that the actual procedures took place in the 90s, about 50% of the cardiomyopathies were deemed idiopathic based on a lack of defining features for disease entities that were known about and diagnosed at the time. But in 2020, we are lucky to have so many more tools at our disposal, namely the frequent use of cardiac MRI and genetic testing. And actually, familial patterns of dilated cardiomyopathy and genetic causes have been identified in up to 35% of dilated cardiomyopathies that were previously considered idiopathic. So this is all to say, I think we should definitely dig a little bit deeper into this patient's cardiomyopathy. The second thing on his problem list is the arrhythmias that we've mentioned multiple times. And he not only has VT and BF, but he also has atrial arrhythmias or AFib and potentially even some sinus node dysfunction, just given the fact that he's being paced from the atrium right now around 52 beats per minute, just while he's sitting in clinic. And then the third problem is his elevated defibrillation thresholds, which we'll hope to explain. Notably, he does not have any signs of systemic disease on exam or on blood work or chest x-ray. He has a negative family history for first-degree relatives, at least, but a vague history of a second cousin who may have had a heart condition. And he has no history of substance use, such as alcohol or cocaine, which are important when we're thinking about a new diagnosis of cardiomyopathy. So with all that in mind, I think we can start making our differential. And the differential for non-ischemic cardiomyopathy is broad. I like to break my differential down into etiologies with known genetic underpinnings, such as HCM, glycogen storage diseases, dilated cardiomyopathies due to genetic causes, and then acquired etiologies such as myocarditis, Takotsubo, endocrinopathies, drug or substance related, infectious etiologies, or inflammatory causes. So usually that's a good place to start. But I think for this patient, we can narrow it a little bit more or at least target our initial workup because what's most striking about this case is the patient's arrhythmias, both the burden and the fact that they're multifocal, atrial and ventricular. So on the top of my differential are cardiomyopathies that are known to be associated with really excess arrhythmias. And so first on that list is cardiac sarcoidosis. And this is a diagnosis that leads to both ventricular and supraventricular conduction abnormalities and arrhythmias and heart failure. And because it's so inflammatory, it could potentially explain the high DFTs, although I'm not sure that there's a lot of literature on that. And I think just based on pattern recognition, we have a young patient with a cardiomyopathy and multifocal arrhythmias. Cardiac sarcoid is probably at the top of my list. But I'm also considering arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies, and these are cardiomyopathies that have a genetic underpinning, but in which there's a predisposition to arrhythmias that's maybe out of proportion to or independent from the degree of LV dysfunction. And the two that come to mind just from our training and the didactics that we've received are Lamin cardiomyopathy. So before we knew about Titan, Lamin cardiomyopathy was the most common cardiomyopathy associated with dilated cardiomyopathy, seen in about 8 to 10% of patients. 
patients with Lambin cardiomyopathy are really arrhythmogenic and they have both ventricular and supraventricular arrhythmias. And then also on my list of these arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies is ARVC or arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, or it's left-sided form, which is called left-dominant ventricular cardiomyopathy. And these are cardiomyopathies that are defined by structural changes to the RV, the LV, or both. And they do have both supraventricular and ventricular arrhythmias. So we don't see any of the typical changes to the RV on this patient's echo that can be seen with ARVC, but this entity can be really challenging to diagnose just based on echo alone as the RV is notoriously hard to visualize. So Graham, how do you think we should work this patient up? Thanks, Sarah. Based on your excellent differential diagnosis, we obviously need further testing. There's obviously a few ways you could go about this, but I think that cardiac MRI probably makes the most sense as the first initial next step, as it provides a lot of information not obtainable by transthoracic echo. So in addition to more accurately defining wall motion, volumes, wall thickness, the real strength of cardiac MRI is really tissue characterization by using different pulse sequences and late gadolinium enhancement that can give information on fatty replacement, edema, iron overload, inflammation, or fibrosis. And just importantly in this patient, because he does have an ICD, there's always a question that arises whether it's safe to perform cardiac MRIs on patients with ICDs. However, with many series of patients showing that it really actually is pretty safe to do this, as long as you have a very thoughtful way of going about it, making sure that device thresholds are stable, leads are intact, there's sufficient battery life, and there are no abandoned leads. All of those would be a contraindication to doing cardiac MRI. And it's important because when cardiac MRI is done, there's interference from radiofrequency pulses given during the MRI. And as such, a patient requires reprogramming before the MRI to turn off tachytherapies as this RF interference can really cause the patient to be shocked in the tunnel. And importantly, if the patient is pacemaker dependent, they need to be changed to an asynchronous pacing mode such as DOO because this could result in oversensing inhibiting pacing and leaving the patient asystolic. So after the MRI, all settings would then need to be changed back to baseline. The second test that I think we need to consider doing in this patient is an FDG PET, FDG standing for fluorodeoxyglucose. And FDG PET is a modality that is really helpful if there's a question about an inflammatory cardiomyopathy. And this is most commonly done to exclude active cardiac sarcoidosis. So FDG PET does this by assessing myocardial glucose metabolism, causing parts of the heart to light up that are more metabolically active than others. And PET can really be done with CMR or CT, and it has the benefit of also assessing extracardiac tissues, such as lymph nodes, which is really critically important in cardiac sarcoidosis diagnosis, as I'll get to in a second. It must also be mentioned that any condition that causes increased glucose utilization in the myocardium will give rise to a positive FDG PET including other inflammatory cardiomyopathies and cardiac malignancies. But at the same time as we're getting some further imaging studies, we could consider also ordering genetic testing, which often takes several weeks to come back. Genetic testing has implications both for prognosis and for family cascade screening. We have the fortune of having a very active cardiogenetic program, and that will assist us with this, including genetic counseling. And we're always encouraged to make an early referral, and we don't necessarily need to wait for other workup to be completed before doing this. Yes, thank you, Graham. The patient actually was referred to our genetics program where they sent off a full genetic panel. And I'm going to jump here and just briefly talk about our genetic cardiomyopathy workup. So anytime we refer patients for genetic testing, they get intensive counseling about what we're going to send and what kinds of results we might receive. 
So in terms of what we send at Northwestern, we do panel-based gene sequencing. This means that we send a complete 92-gene cardiomyopathy panel right from the start instead of doing a more stepwise approach, which was the historical approach, i.e. we send an HCM panel, we wait for the results. If that's negative, we send something else. The reason for this is that doing a gene-by-gene approach can be really costly and time-consuming and nerve-wracking for the patient as they're waiting for all of these results. But the potential downside is that we might get a lot of information and not know what to do with it. So that brings me to the second point about kinds of results. We always explain the potential types of results to patients, and that's namely benign or likely benign. So these are mutations that are not associated with disease, pathogenic or likely pathogenic. And these are mutations that are known to be associated with disease or cardiomyopathy. And then finally, we can get variants of uncertain significance or VUS, VUSs. And these are basically alleles or variant forms of a gene that have been identified through genetic testing as a rare mutation not observed in healthy subjects, but whose significance in causing disease is not entirely clear. The uncertainty of a VUS result can be really challenging for both patients and physicians. And so it's important that you have stellar genetic counselors and clinicians who can have patient-centered discussions in which they can both help interpret and explain the potential significance or implications of these types of results. Sarah, thanks so much for going over how to interpret genetic testing. I really appreciate, Graham, your explanation of FDG-PET and cardiac MRI in these settings. Getting a cardiac MRI to look at tissue characterization and distribution of LGE and other patterns and getting a better assessment of the RV is, as well as getting an FDG-PET when I'm concerned about sarcoid, are certainly within my usual practice, but I haven't sent as much genetic testing for cardiomyopathy. And I'm just wondering, Sarah, for you, maybe, what are your the situations where you typically send genetic testing in this context? Is it for every non-ischemic cardiomyopathy or is it non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with certain red flags or features? Help me out here. Yeah. Like I said, we have so many diagnostic tools available at our disposal, including advanced imaging, but we also have this burgeoning field of cardiovascular genetics that can be extremely helpful when we have unexplained cardiomyopathies. And so I think that for patients where you have a cardiomyopathy that's doesn't have a clear etiology based on your other diagnostic testing, it's always reasonable to refer them to genetics. And we're lucky enough to have some great geneticists who are always available to, you know, I just called Dr. Wilsbacher last week and asked if a patient was appropriate to refer to them. I think especially in a patient who has all of these arrhythmias and who has this cardiomyopathy at such a young age, it's especially appropriate. Also, the diagnosis of ischemic cardiomyopathies tends to be thrown around a lot. So if a patient has just, for example, a small CERC lesion, but an EF of 25%, often these patients walk around with a diagnosis of ischemic cardiomyopathy and no one does need further workup. Patients who happen to have coronary disease, but their cardiomyopathy is out of proportion to their ischemic burden, that's also an important subgroup to think about. Oh, that's a great teaching point, Graham. And Sarah, I really appreciate, first of all, how you lay out the whole genetic program at Northwestern and also how do you utilize it in the counseling. I actually recently had to go through genetic testing for my own personal family and having that, the, the pre-counseling meetings were just so helpful, especially for my wife, who's not in medicine. And, but myself also, just to like know what your options are or actually what the outcomes of the test were, actually made me a better consenter. I was consenting for cath. Now I, I'm really aware that I should let the patient know of the potential outcomes and the potential next steps for the different outcomes of the test that they're actually about to have. Really serves as a good model for any type of 
testing, especially when the answers to your tests actually come out and could be completely life-changing. You don't want to basically tell somebody, oh yeah, we capped you and bypass is definitely what you need. And they had no, they thought they were getting their stents. So just set me up and fix me up and let me go. And I've seen that play out and learn from that. So just incredible the way that you described it. And just following up with Amit's question. So there are a lot of patients that have non-ischemic cardiomyopathies. And as Graham said, we definitely ruled out true non-ischemic cardiomyopathies. But they may have a history of alcoholism. Obviously, they could be in remission or not, or some cocaine use in the past. And a lot of times, people want to just tack that as a diagnosis for their heart failure and necessarily skip the genetic testing. Is that wise or is that unwise from your perspective? I think it's probably unwise. And I think the more that we're learning about these genetic cardiomyopathies, the more that we're learning that there's probably some interaction between environmental factors or those acquired causes that I mentioned, such as alcohol and underlying genetic predispositions to cardiomyopathy. And I think in the next decade, we'll probably learn even more about that. I guess I'm saying that at least a referral to genetic testing is probably appropriate in most patients who have you know, cardiomyopathy of unclear etiology. When you think about in peripartum cardiomyopathy, the impact and pathophysiology involving hormones, prolactin fragments, or abnormal signaling of the vascular endothelial growth factors. It turns out a lot of these patients also do have genetic predisposing factors or mutations in the background. And so it may be that, sure, the patient had alcoholism or cocaine or some other toxic mediator, but it's a two-hit process where they were predisposed or primed by a genetic variant at baseline. That may have ramifications in our approach to the patient, but certainly, like Graham pointed out, cascade screening and ramifications for family members because penetrance and expressivity may be different from one relative to another. Thank you, Sarah and Graham, for explaining all of that. And just like Graham suggested, the patient actually did get a PET-CT and a cardiac MRI. The PET-CT showed diffuse cardiac uptake with high-intensity signal at the inferolateral and basal anterior LV walls, which favored a diagnosis of sarcoidosis. The cardiac MRI showed diffuse circumferential epicardial delayed enhancement with associated diffuse enhancing thickening of the pericardium. This favored an inflammatory or fibrotic process that was potentially related to myopericarditis. And we have the benefit of looking at these images here. And for the audience, definitely check out the blog for the related images. It's really impressive. And the first time I took a look at this PET-CT, the uptake is so diffuse that my initial impression was that, is this just failure to suppress background myocardial FTG uptake? And of course, the sarcoid diet, if you will, we need to suppress myocardial glucose uptake. So that way, the FTG uptake that is seen within the myocardium truly reflects inflammation and white blood cells. And we have the patient essentially NPO with a high fatty diet. And so I think the most common cause of diffuse uptake is probably inadequate prep. And you'd wonder if a patient cheated on their diet. But the correlative MRI findings really tells you that, no, this actually was diffuse uptake with some areas that were particularly hot. And it's really helpful to look at both the MRI and the PET, the multimodal understanding of the disease process. And Amit, you're exactly right. It was thought that the initial results of the PET were due to inadequate diet prep. And so he actually had two PET CTs just to make sure because people didn't believe the degree of inflammation and the same result was obtained twice. Oh, wow. Okay, there you go. Okay, so there it is. Sure looks like cardiac sarcoid, right? So maybe this is a good time to just talk about what cardiac sarcoid actually is and how we go about diagnosing it. So sarcoidosis in general is really an idiopathic systemic inflammatory granulomatous disease. Pulmonary disease is the most common manifestation. It can obviously affect multiple organs. 
including about 5% of patients who actually have clinical cardiac involvement, although autopsy theories suggest up to about 25% may have some subclinical cardiac involvement on pathology. The most common clinical manifestations of cardiac sarcoidosis are conduction disease, such as heart block or sinus node dysfunction, ventricular arrhythmia, and heart failure. So is this patient's diagnosis now consistent with sarcoid? Are we done? So let's first of all review the diagnostic criteria established by the Heart Rhythm Society consensus statement. So there are really two pathways to diagnosis, both of which require other causes to be excluded, i.e. cardiac sarcoidosis as a diagnosis of exclusion. So the first pathway is really histological diagnosis requiring non-caseating granulomas on endomyocardial biopsy in the absence of other causes. The second is a clinical diagnosis where you have a patient who is known to have systemic sarcoid confirmed histologically on extracardiac tissue sampling, most commonly mediastinal lymph nodes, and that alongside clinical features consistent with cardiac involvement, such as a steroid-responsive cardiomyopathy, LV ejection fraction less than 40%, sustained VT, high-degree AV block, patchy FDG uptake on PET, or patchy late gadolinium enhancement to LGE on cardiac MRI, and this all in a pattern consistent with cardiac sarcoidosis. So just talking a little bit about the imaging features that would be consistent or classical for cardiac sarcoid, unfortunately, there's not really one pattern that fits all patients, but the classical echo features usually include single or multiple areas of focal wall thinning, regional wall motion abnormalities, and aneurysm. And the most commonly implicated area is really the basal septum, or occasionally patients can have wall thickening related to active inflammation, or at times, especially in burnt-out cardiomyopathies, a globally reduced systolic function with no real regionality. And importantly, this regional wall motion abnormality is usually in non-vascular territories. So cardiac MRI, on the other hand, typically shows multifocal patchy late gadolinium enhancement, or LGE, and this really represents some combination of inflammation, edema, and or fibrosis. And typically, or classically, this really spares the subendocardium, and it has a predilection for the septum and lateral walls. FDG PET, on the other hand, typically shows focal or focal and diffuse FGG uptake and represents inflammation indicating disease activity. So in patients, you know, with cardiac sarcoidosis, you can gauge how much of the patchy LGE that you see on cardiac MRI is due to active ongoing inflammation by using the PET information. And just like Ahmed had highlighted earlier, when you see global uptakes such as in this patient, you really need to think hard about whether there's inadequate PrEP and this is a false positive scan. And relevant to this patient, when we talk about the diagnostic criteria, because we don't have any tissue in this patient, one third of patients with cardiac sarcoid have isolated cardiac involvement and may not have any extra cardiac tissue available for a biopsy. So for example, in this patient, his CT didn't have any large lymph nodes and the PET didn't show any lymph nodes lighting up. So this creates a challenge because endocardial biopsy, which is in the diagnostic criteria when you don't have extra cardiac tissue available, has reported to have a very low sensitivity of probably less than 25%. And this is really due to the patchy involvement and sparing the subendocardium. So this problem with biopsy, as well as the risk related to potential biopsy in someone who has a thinned out right ventricle, really begs for a risk-benefit discussion. The guidelines do suggest that every patient that you diagnose with cardiac sarcoid has some sort of tissue diagnosis, but very commonly, such as in this patient, once a risk-benefit discussion was had, the biopsy was decided not to be pursued due to what was thought to be pretty classical imaging findings 
which were compatible, although not, not 100% pathognomonic with cardiac sarcoidosis. So Sarah, why don't you take us on back to the case? Yeah, thank you, Graham. So based on these findings, the patient was diagnosed with sarcoid, and he was started on prednisone and weekly methotrexate. He was also listed for transplant. However, the genetic testing returned, and he was found to have a pathogenic variant for the DSP, or desmoplakin gene. He was also found to have a variant of uncertain significance, or VUS, for the lamin AC gene. So I love this case for so many reasons. First, it's really satisfying to finally get a diagnosis for this patient after 10 years of not having answers. And second, it highlights all of the amazing technology that we have at our disposal in the current era of medicine, including advanced imaging and genetic testing. And then finally, this case really showcases the thoughtful team effort that was displayed by our physicians at Northwestern. The patient was initially seen in our heart failure clinic where there was immediate suspicion for arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy or sarcoid. Within one week, he had appointments with electrophysiology and in our genetics clinic. And within six weeks of presentation, we had our diagnosis. And I also just want to highlight that the heart failure, EP, and cardiovascular geneticists were all women. And the number of excellent female role models we have at Northwestern was a huge selling point for me when I decided to stay for fellowship. So a shout out to Dr. Wilsbacher, Dr. Vorovich, and Dr. Kim for taking excellent care of this patient. Guys, this is a, really such a tremendous discussion. And I think the patient really benefited from having access to such incredible diagnostics, such incredible clinicians, and it was really such a tremendous thought process. But take me back to the diagnosis. I thought we diagnosed sarcoid cardiomyopathy on the basis of active inflammation, but then there's also a genetic mutation. What, which is it? Yeah. Yeah. How do we put, how do we put those together? Uh, do we have an Occam's razor or is this a Hickam's dictum? Or is this Hickam's dictum? Yeah. So that's the end of our case. We're just going to stop here and say he has two things. No, I'm just kidding. It would be unfair, but it happens. But uh, <laughs> exactly. is there a way? Can you put this all together? Yeah. So this was a little bit of a surprise. And so I'm going to talk about desmoplakin cardiomyopathy and we'll see if we can come up with a unifying diagnosis. This patient is heterozygous for a pathogenic variant in the desmoplakin gene consistent with desmoplakin cardiomyopathy. And he's also heterozygous for one of those pesky vuses in the lamin gene, which I'll get to in a bit. So desmoplakin is a structural protein within desmosomes. And desmosomes are intercellular junctions that are especially important in epithelial cells and cardiomyocytes. So pathogenic variants in the DSP gene are associated with autosomal dominant forms of ARVC and left-dominant arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, whereby about 7% of patients with these cardiomyopathies carry a DSP mutation. And loss of function variants in the DSP gene were originally described for an autosomal recessive form of ARVC that's accompanied by woolly hair and palmoplantar keratoderma, or Carvajal syndrome. And actually, a shout out to Noshin Reza, who's the chair of ACC FIT, who just published a case report of a left-dominant arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy that was associated with a rare autosomal dominant truncating variant in DSP. And she has some great pictures of the dermatologic findings that can accompany this genetic cardiomyopathy. And Sarah, I just have to cut in to second your shout out of uh, Dr. Noshin Riza, who's just been such a tremendous ally and actually has been a huge collaborator in this whole project of the CNCR across the country with the different fellowship programs. So she's been tremendous in so many ways. We featured her in one of our episodes and we're really happy to have been able to work with her. 
another just such incredible woman in cardiology. Hashtag WIC. We're just such a fan and she's quite a role model to us. Yeah, she is a true role model. And I feel like it was fate that her case report came out just this past week as we were preparing for this case. Recent data actually suggests, however, that the majority of patients with DSP mutations actually have a cardiomyopathy that's distinct from ARVC or left-dominant arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy based on histologic studies. There was a recent paper that was conceived by Adam Helms' group at University of Michigan, led by a cardiology fit, Eric Smith, and was co-authored by a number of our Northwestern attendings, including Dr. Wilsbacher and Dr. Beth McNally, that looked at clinical characteristics of patients with pathogenic DSP mutations. And the patients that they described were actually very similar to our patient in many ways. They tended to present in their 30s, and 30% of them had frequent VT, which was unrelated to the severity of LV dysfunction. And so here's the part where this case gets very interesting. So they found that there's a significant inflammatory component to this cardiomyopathy. Patients frequently present with episodic chest pain and troponin elevation or myocardial injury. So these are accompanied by inflammatory episodes seen on imaging with cardiac MRI showing late gadolinium enhancement and PET showing active inflammation in the myocardium. So they really have these intermittent inflammatory episodes that appear clinically very similar to recurrent myocarditis or sarcoid. And so this potentially explains our cardiac MRI and PET findings, which fooled us into thinking that this was sarcoid. And there's actually an emerging body of work that suggests that what we think of as cardiac sarcoidosis, that is this inflammatory cardiomyopathy with non-necrotizing granulomas, but without extra cardiac involvement, may actually be a manifestation of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. There have been case reports describing instances of patients who met clinical, histologic, and genetic criteria for ARVC but who also had non-necrotizing granulomas on cardiac explantation or autopsy suggestive of cardiac sarcoid. And I think we're finding more and more clinically and in the literature that these genetic cardiomyopathies are very inflammatory. And so my takeaway is that we should potentially think about sending genetic testing in patients who present with an inflammatory cardiomyopathy that's concerning for cardiac sarcoid without any extra cardiac manifestations of sarcoid. Wow, this is like mind blowing. It's, uh, I I definitely was like I'm aware of a lot of different genetic uh, conditions as we talked about, like almost like a two hit hypothesis where you have various mutations that may lead to a phenotype of HCM or maybe non compaction LV or other different or just a dilated cardiomyopathy. So definitely knew that there was a lot of crossover. But you're telling me, let me just make sure I'm hearing what I'm hearing. Are you telling me that there are cases where you have non caseating granulomas on biopsy? and turn to have a genetic cause or genetic etiology rather than a sarcoid primary etiology in patients with phenotypical sarcoid on cardiac imaging and even biopsy, but we're not seeing it anywhere else. Is that what I'm hearing? That is what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that patients who have an inflammatory cardiomyopathy that's attributed to cardiac sarcoidosis and some of whom have non-necrotizing or non-caseating granulomas on histology end up having 
positive genetic testing. This is incredible. I feel like this should be on the first page of New York Times. But this is the first time I'm really learning about this phenomenon. And thinking back to a case I heard of that was diagnosed as an isolated RV sarcoidosis based on imaging. And I'm wondering if there was actually a picophyllin ARVC mutation in the background. We are understanding a little bit about how we diagnose them clinically. One question I have is, I have two questions actually, and it's okay if we don't know the answer, but one, is it that the genetic mutation somehow causes like an antigenic protein variant or interacts with the immune system somehow? And then the follow-up question is, they obviously are inflamed. There's true, genuine inflammation. That's what we see on the PET scan. And so is the management similar? Do you still treat them with immunosuppression or immunomodulation when they present as such? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I don't think we know what the mechanism of inflammation is. It's interesting that for these patients in the paper that I cited, the inflammation was quite intermittent. So they had these intermittent inflammatory episodes, which I guess could be similar to cardiac sarcoid, but cardiac sarcoid usually is extremely responsive to prednisone. For this patient, we did end up stopping his prednisone because I don't think that there's any data to suggest that patients with uh, rhythmogenic or genetic cardiomyopathies are steroid responsive. I've been wondering this ever since I learned about this case is, is do anti-inflammatories have a role when there is inflammation or there may be inflammation? Maybe Dr. Wilsbacher could. Uh, I'm going to phone a friend. We don't know. It's something that needs to be studied. Follow-up pet CT showed not 100%, but significant improvement in the regions of FDG uptake. We didn't do an MRI at the same time to see if delayed enhancement still correlated. I presume that it would. I would say that whatever was delayed enhancement before and metabolically active, even when it's quiet, it's still going to be scar tissue. But yeah, we, we don't know. Now, the antigen is most likely a piece of sarcomere or myofilament. The thought is that these cardiomyocytes are undergoing apoptosis. And as there, there may be even just frank necrosis, if there's enough of the cardiomyocytes going down at the same time, you know, is that the antigen? And is that what's leading to the immune response? And then the non-caseating granuloma is getting walled off. We just don't know. And the bigger question though is of whether these patients would be responsive to immunosuppression. It's a fantastic research question that needs to be looked into a little bit more. And the, the overall prevalence of genetic cardiomyopathies with cardiac isolated sarcoidosis is also unclear at this point. We just need a lot more data, a lot more patients to understand how much cardiac isolated sarcoidosis is actually a genetic cardiomyopathy. This all just makes me so excited to be a cardiologist. There's such an interesting time in the, in the field and so much to learn and get to know. So the last element of the case that I was going to discuss is that Lamin variant of uncertain significance. And luckily, we warned this patient that their results might include a bus. But this is just an example of how a bus can sometimes be a little bit confusing. So a little bit about Lamin. LMNA encodes Lamin A slash C, which is a nuclear envelope protein. And known pathogenic variants in LMNA are associated with cardiomyopathy that's characterized by LV enlargement and or reduced systolic function, as well as conduction disease and arrhythmias. And the variant that this patient had has not been observed in large population sequence databases, but based on the specific characteristics of the variant, which I won't go into, it was suspected that the variant was more on the pathogenic end of the VUS spectrum. 
So it's definitely possible that this variant of uncertain significance contributed to at least some of his clinical picture. But at the time, there's not enough evidence in the literature of an association between this VUS and clinical disease to, say, test family members for this variant. Okay. I just wanted to go over the outcome of this case and some final teaching points. How did this case end? So based on the low likelihood that this patient has two separate diagnoses, it was really felt that all these findings were due to a desmoplakian cardiomyopathy and not cardiac sarcoid, and as such, prednisone and methotrexate were stopped. Dr. Wilsbacher from Cardiovascular Genetics had recommended genetic testing of all first-degree relatives. We're still awaiting this. And importantly, the patient did not really know his father as it came out in pre-testing genetic counseling. So that'll be a bit of a limitation especially in trying to determine if the VUS was pathogenic or not. The patient is still listed for transplant in the event that incessant arrhythmias recur. It seems as if DFTs have settled after stopping the amiodarone, so it seems like that may have actually been the cause of high DFTs in this patient, but only time will tell. The patient at the moment does clinically continue to have some runs of VT and PVCs, which are multifocal and not amenable to ablation. So they decided, as amiodarone was stopped, to change the patient to sotalol. Based on the presence of AFib with the presence of edismoplakian cardiomyopathy, it was decided to anticoagulate this patient. And it's important in these patients to not purely rely on the CHADS-VAS score. Some final teaching points. So non-ischemic cardiomyopathy is not a final diagnosis and really requires further workup, especially in the presence of atypical features, such as occurred in this case. Number two. Advanced imaging, including cardiac MRI and PET, are really valuable in ruling out other causes. And number three, think about genetic testing in young people with non-ischemic cardiomyopathies or patients with atypical features. And number four, which is really highlighted in this case, a new exciting area is that the small subgroup of patients with isolated cardiac sarcoidosis may actually represent potential genetic arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. So this just points to the fact that cardiac sarcoidosis is really a diagnosis of exclusion, and you must really have extreme caution if you're diagnosing someone with cardiac sarcoidosis in the absence of extracardiac disease. And it's important to exclude other causes of a positive PET, for example, inadequate PrEP or other inflammatory cardiomyopathies. Well, Graham, Sarah Hill, and Sarah Shusey, this has just been such an incredible discussion centered around a fascinating case, but really you all took every single opportunity to teach and talk about different areas from DFTs to imaging modalities and genetic testing. I learned so much and really kudos to you all as uh, educators and also the capabilities and the just the clinical workflow and process there at Northwestern. So I think this case is really telling about all the things that are so exciting about cardiology. So I'd love to ask each of you, what do you love about cardiology and what do you enjoy about training at Northwestern? All right, so I can take it first. So I think the thing that drew me to Northwestern was coming out of residency training. You have some sort of idea of what you would like to do with your career, but not having gone through fellowship, it's hard to select a defined path. So I really enjoyed the fact that our program is supportive of a very diverse array of career paths with strengths really in all cardiac subspecialties, as well as clinical research. And the second thing that really drew me to the program is that we have one-on-one -on -one exposure with leaders in the field, and especially leaders who are in guideline writing committees, such as Dr. Yancey in heart failure, who is also the past president of the AHA, Dr. Don Lloyd-Jones, who's very well known in the prevention realm and is the president-elect of the AHA, Dr. Neil Stone, who really revolutionized the lipid guidelines in 2013, 
and Dr. Bono, who is one of the pioneers and responsible for a lot of the valve guidelines. So that's really what I loved about the program. And the cherry on top was really that Chicago is my favorite city. I can go next. What I love about cardiology is just the amazing spectrum of clinical care that we're able to provide. You get physiology, you get prevention, you have longitudinal patient relationships. I really love critical care and actually end-of-life care, helping patients live out the end of life comfortably and in as patient-centered of a way as possible. Advanced heart failure and transplant is a great fit for me just because it does combine quality of life, critical care, devices, and end-of-life care. And I think Northwestern, there's so many opportunities to engage in multidisciplinary relationships and research. We have fellows who are engaged in genetics and basic science research. We have an amazing Department of Preventative Medicine for fellows who are interested in cardiovascular epidemiology. We have uh, a master's of science in artificial intelligence that a few of my co-fellows are engaged in this year. And like I said, for me, I'm interested in palliative care and I've had the opportunity to really work alongside our palliative care physicians to study sort of advanced care planning and ventricular assist device patients. And I've received a ton of support from our program leadership and my co-fellows. And I think Northwestern really has it all. And like we said, it's in the greatest city ever. So everyone should join us. Yeah, I definitely echo everything Graham and Sarah said. I think what I love about cardiology and kind of what drew me to the field, and I'm at the very beginning, so I'm learning something every day, but I love the physiology of it, but also that we have so many invasive and non-invasive tools to figure out what's going on with somebody and then treat them effectively. And I just really love that we can take care of some really sick people and actually help them. I'm also interested in critical care, but I love that at the same time in cardiology, you can have a longitudinal relationship with somebody in clinic. And I think that's unique to our field. And then in terms of what I love about Northwestern, I did residency here. So I knew that I loved the environment and the people. Everyone is so supportive here and so excited about advancing the field and research. And there's so many amazing both clinical and research opportunities here. And I just really loved that we are so strong, I think, in every aspect of cardiology that I knew I would get both amazing training and exposure to incredible leaders in the field. Guys, that was absolutely beautiful. And Sarah Hale, you said something along the lines of you're still early and so you're learning every day. And one of the things that I love about cardiology is that it is so rich and so diverse that I feel like I'm learning cardiology every day. And I imagine that the experts in the field and the experts we have on our show are also excited to be learning every single day. And one of the best parts about this whole project for us is that we get to see that there is incredible, fascinating cardiology happening everywhere at the hands of bright, enthusiastic, and brilliant people like yourselves. And so we're just so thankful for you to share your learning from Northwestern with us. It's been such an awesome discussion, really enjoying the lakeside here in Chicago. This was just tremendous. Thank you. Yeah, if you guys could uh, see the light bulbs going off around my head as your discussion progressed, it would be like, bling, bling, bling. I've just been learning so, so much from this discussion. And we are just so grateful that you agreed to partake in this wonderful opportunity. Thank you so much for having us. We had a great time. Yes, thank you so much. It was awesome. 
And now for our eCPR segment with Dr. Lisa Wilsbacher, cardiovascular geneticist and woman in cardiology extraordinaire. Thanks very much for the opportunity to be a part of this. The entire case and the entire series for CardioNerds has been such a fantastic learning opportunity. This case in particular, we found across the division such a great teaching case because there's a little bit of something for everyone. And what I'm going to focus in on right now is the genetics and how we approach genetic testing for folks who present with a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. The first question that comes up is why test when we don't have genetic therapies yet? And it's important to point out that especially for non-ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy or for idiopathic cardiomyopathy, a genetic underlying genetic mutation is found in between 15 to 40% of cases, depending on which series you're looking at. And those results can have implications both for patients in terms of their treatment and then for their family members. Probably the best example of why genetic testing is important in idiopathic DCM, there are a couple of mutations that if they're present, then those patients should get an ICD, even if they have recovery of their EF after getting good guideline-directed medical therapy. So in particular, those genes are Lamin, DSP, FLIN-C. These are genes that if you have a known mutation, they need an ICD no matter what. So you're changing management already. We often get the question, who should be tested? And for DCM, anyone where it's non-ischemic or, as was pointed out earlier in the podcast, where ischemia can't explain the burden of the low EF. If they're less than 60 years old, that's my practice. Have them referred. We will evaluate patients. Every now and then we may say that they're not quite meeting criteria, but more often than not, we will say that any non-ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy deserves that opportunity for genetic testing and a potential genetic diagnosis. Genetic counseling up front is key. It's very important to go through with the patients what the testing entails, what types of genes we're going to be looking at, and what the potential results could be, whether it's benign, whether it's on the other end of the spectrum and it's a pathogenic variant, otherwise known as a mutation, or if it's that gray zone in the middle called the variant of uncertain significance. When patients know up front that these are the possibilities, then it makes it much easier to understand what the implications could be. And that was really nicely discussed by the whole team earlier in the podcast. In terms of this particular patient's case, there was the inflammatory component that really took the team down the line of cardiac sarcoidosis, and yet genetic testing provided us with a genetic diagnosis. The inflammation and these inflammatory or highly arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies are becoming more understood as an entity in and of itself. Traditionally, we think of the arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies as right ventricular, ARVC. But over the past 10, 15 years, a better understanding of the left-dominant arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies has come to the, to the front. Lamin, of course, has been an important driver in these groups. And now FLIN-C is another important component that's been discovered just in the past few years. And as this case highlights, desmoplakin. DSP and the, the work that Adam Helms' group has done at University of Michigan, as well as other groups with case series, when you put this body of evidence together, really demonstrates that there are important genes that drive an arrhythmogenic component that appears to have an inflammatory component as well. For the patient's variant of uncertain significance in Lamin, we don't know if that's contributed to his cardiomyopathy, but it sure doesn't help. 
and some of the features that he had in terms of having atrial arrhythmias, AFib, and potentially sinus node dysfunction, suggestive that the lamin bus is in play in his case. And finally, the post-testing genetic counseling is every bit as important as the pre-test genetic counseling, because now we can provide the patients with the results and then guide them on what they should be doing next. If a patient does have a known mutation, then we can offer cascade genetic testing for their first-degree family members and identify anyone who's at risk. Just as importantly, though, if genetic testing is negative, that does not rule out a genetic cause. There are many genes that we just haven't discovered yet as being important in genetic cardiomyopathy, and those family members really need to continue with screening, echocardiograms, EKGs every three to five years. So thank you again for the opportunity to go through this case. And once again, I thought it was a great job done by Amit and Dan and Sarah, Graham and Sarah. Great work. And now a message to applicants from our program director, Dr. Ben Freed. Hi, my name is Ben Freed, and I am the program director of the Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. I am a general cardiologist who specializes in cardiovascular imaging, including echocardiography and MRI. Thank you for the terrific opportunity to be involved in this podcast. I am incredibly impressed with Ahmed and Dan and all the creative talent that went into putting this podcast together, and I am so proud of our fellows, Dr. Sarah Chusey, Graham Lorman, and Sarah Hale, who presented this case. Listening to their excitement and passion as they meticulously walk through every step of the case and the extensive amount of teaching they provided along the way is a testament to the extraordinary trainees we have at Northwestern and the incredible mentorship that is provided. It is yet another reason I feel so fortunate to be in this role at what I believe is one of the best cardiovascular fellowship programs in the country. Let me highlight several aspects of our program that make us one of the best. At Northwestern, we strive to produce exceptional cardiovascular clinicians who are culturally competent, embody the spirit of patients first, and aspire to be leaders in cardiovascular medicine. Our training environment promotes scientific inquiry, outstanding patient care, and collegiality. We provide a multitude of learning opportunities, not just in cath, imaging, EP, etc., but in cardiac genetics, translational science, quality improvement, and leadership training as well. Another unique feature of our program is the amount of flexibility it provides for our fellows to pursue additional training for their career. Because we are part of such a large university, our program can offer a variety of advanced degree programs, including a master's in clinical investigation, master's in public health, a master's in health informatics, and our recently funded master's in artificial intelligence. We also provide a variety of certificate programs, including medical education, global health, and bioethics. These programs are embedded in our three-year fellowship, so no extra time is needed to participate. Many of our fellows extend their research time with one of several T32 grants or other funding mechanisms. Another aspect of our program that I am so proud of is our commitment to diversity and inclusion. That commitment starts with our recruitment efforts and permeates every part of our division. Our fellows and faculty recently formed a committee called DRIVE, or Diversity Representation and Inclusion Vehicle for Equity, which seeks to promote and support an inclusive climate within Northwestern cardiology empowering trainees, faculty, and staff to build a diverse and inclusive division through mentorship, community engagement, and education. Finally, one of the best ways to describe our program is collaborative and collegial. 
As our case highlighted, we work in an incredibly collaborative environment where our radiologists, cardiac geneticists, heart failure specialists, and electrophysiologists all join forces to help care for this patient. We truly are a close-knit community. We're supporting each other through the good times and the challenging times is essential and expected. Our faculty include some of the foremost thought leaders in the field, but they are some of the most accessible people in the group. Thank you so much for having us on your podcast. Please learn more about our program through Twitter at WeAreNUHeart and our website. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the CardioNerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Verghese, internal medicine senior resident at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, read and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. That was amazing. Oh my gosh. Stop. We were just, me and Dan, we had this like text message back and forth. Like that was so like practically useful and informative, but like at the same time, so easy to follow. That was awesome. That was yeah. Uh, I wrote that's a- stellar, all caps. She's taking such a subject that is often taught not as excitingly, making it so interesting, and throwing in historical aspects like a boss. Oh my gosh, so exciting! This is really good. This you guys perfect. are too nice. You're-